Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Hi everybody, this is Klaatu. You're listening to Commons and Chronicles, my show in which I talk about public domain, and creative commons lore. In this episode, I want to talk specifically about the Mori creation myth. Now, in the previous episode, I talked about the Tanifa, which is a dragon sea creature type thing from Mori legend. Mori being the native people of New Zealand. Well, native with an asterisk, I guess. They technically discovered New Zealand themselves having come from some other place. I don't know that anyone agrees on where that place was, but they they navigated to New Zealand thousands of years ago now. And within the tribes that existed across New Zealand, across the two different islands that consist of New Zealand, they came up with some different creation myths. That's what I wanted to talk about today. Now, of course, the Tanifa, the the dragon, the sea dragon, has a connection to Dungeons & Dragons in in a tenuous way, because there's a Magic the Gathering card out there called the Tanifa. The creation myth of the Mori people has no connection to Dungeons & Dragons or to gaming in any way. But I think it's something that I wanted to cover because... First of all, I don't know how often we talk about some of the native culture lores from different areas. Certainly, as I've said before on this show, back in school I never really got a whole lot of myth or legend from local people. we, we, We were taught Greek and Roman mythology, mostly Greek. I think we just we discussed how that had sort of transformed into Roman myths later, and and that was kind of it. I, I've I've lamented before that I never really got a whole lot of Egyptian mythology in school, and I never got any Norse mythology. So I feel like there's this big chunk of of rich storytelling that a lot of us just don't ever encounter. It would be my preference to get someone on the show to talk about this oral storytelling tradition, or or these stories which were traditionally passed down, just verbally. I would love to talk to someone about that. I haven't found the right person yet, and so I decided to present what I have. If at some point I get someone more knowledgeable on this topic, I will absolutely release that as an episode. So the way that I came across what I wanted, what, what I'm going to talk about today, is that I happened to be on the South Island of New Zealand last week, and had a little bit of extra time between hunting for a, a new flat, and went to the Otago Museum. The Otago Museum, when you first go in, has a presentation running about the creation of the world from the Mori perspective. It's a very powerful presentation done with a lot of gravitas and lots of fancy lights and 
audio visuals. And I'd never really heard about the creation myth of the Modi people. And the moment that I did, I thought that it it rang that there was a certain thing that that seemed similar about it to other creation myths that I'd heard. And there was something that I'd read, I think, when researching the Norse mythology, or maybe it was the Egyptian one, about how a lot of cultures emphasize the relationship of the sky and the land in their creation myths, or that they emphasize the sky and the earth so greatly through discussing their their different gods, and it becomes a, a real center point. And, I mean, I'm no anthropologist, but it seems like creation myths discuss, or rather betray, more about what a culture wants to emphasize in their current lives than it betrays anything, certainly, about how the universe actually came into being. And the fact that lots of older cultures that were very concerned about really day-to-day stuff, like, is the food going to grow in our gardens this year? The emphasis was very frequently on what kind of relationship the sky had with the land. For obvious reasons, if you've done any amount of gardening, you know that you, you have very high hopes for predictable and even fairly evenly distributed amounts of sunlight and rain every year and if it if it if it goes off balance just a little bit then the effort goes way way up and in some cases there's not really a whole lot you can do if you get nothing but rain and gray skies it's just not going to you're not going to get anything. So, I mean, and especially if I'm, you're, you're talking to us about gardening in your back, in your back garden, <laughs> backyard, um, there's, there's this, there's a very real reliance upon the sky and, and the favorability of, 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 of what the soil has been subject to over the past year. And I'm, I'm speaking from hobbyist gardening perspective. I'm not speaking from a, a perspective where you're actually relying on feeding people with what you produce from your garden, just for fun. So here's the Mori creation myth, more or less, from what I've learned from the Otago Museum and a little bit of cursory research online, with apologies to anyone who knows more about this stuff than I do. Basically, there are three states, or three stages, of the creation myth. There's Tekore, which is T-E space K-O-R-E, Tekore. There's Tepo, and Te-Aumarama. We'll start with Tekore, because that's the first one. And it is... Well, you're tempted to say it's nothingness, or the great void, emptiness... But in the amounts of reading that I've done, and certainly what the museum was saying, there's also the the implication in Tekore that when you the thing that you're looking at retrospectively 
in passing as nothingness is actually great potential. And it is kind of an interesting difference because if you look at something that's, for instance, standing utterly still, you might say that that thing is standing still or it is in an inert state. But if there's something that's standing still in a pose of, of, you know, it's about to pounce on something, then there is a difference there. You might still say that it's not moving, but what you really mean is that it's about to pounce. And that's the sense that I get from Tekore, that the idea of Tekore, it, it's not that it's just nothingness and a void, it is a potential of great energy, or of, of, of greatness. How Ketore became something is not really explained at all, as far as I can tell. By which I mean there's not really a segue between this potential of something and then there being something. The closest that you can get, as far as I can tell, is that from Tekore, it's sort of... It, there may be a gradient, a gradual shift from Tekore to Tepo, and Tepo is darkness, great darkness, or or rather night. So it's not just darkness, but it is, it's it's night. That is, it's it's darkness with the with the knowledge that something is there. So it goes from potential to then there is something there. We just can't see it yet because it is in this it is shrouded in darkness in the night of feeling in the night of seeking a passage to the world and from from the night there's the glimmer of dawn and then there's the bright light of day and so there is life and that is the creation myth of the of of the mori culture with variation being allotted for the fact that the Mori people were not um, just one big group of people on on um, Eotearoa, they were lots of iwi spread across two islands. So that's there's going to be a lot of variation here, um, and and of course it's not written down anywhere. It's an oral tradition, so th there's probably even more variation than we we could possibly realize. But I'll talk about the one that I, that I'll just keep talking about the one that I know about because that's that's what I've got. So, um, the 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 problem was that during I believe it's during Tepo, the that there were there were two gods that that pre that already existed. And again, there's not a whole lot of detail about that transition from potential to everything now exists. But and that that strikes me as a little bit similar to the Egyptian mythology how in the in the creation the nile kind of f just sort of flows into the world and you're thinking well wait where i missed the part where the world came into being and and it's kind of similar here but i guess it's technically similar in all creation myths right there's there's nothing and then suddenly there's something so there were these two gods and the gods were raki the sky father and papa tuanuku papa tuanuku the earth mother and they fell in love and 
they embraced. Now, because they were embracing, it was blocking light from getting to the world. And so the sons and daughters of these two gods, of Raki and Papatuanuku, I believe, from what I was understanding, they were pre-existing children. They weren't born of these two parents. They were they already existed as sons and daughters. But the the the, the children of these two gods decided that they needed to separate the two gods so that light could come to the world. And so they did. They separated the two gods, the the sky and the land, and thereby allowing the the sun the, the light to reach the land. Because it just wasn't being physically blocked by the gods now. These children later decided to go check out their new mom. They wanted to see what she was like. And so they descended from from the sky or from the heavens to to the world, to the land, to the earth. Specifically, there were four sons of Raki who were named uh, Auraki, which is the cloud in the sky from which, or, or not from which, but the the native name of New Zealand is actual is is Aotearoa, and that's got the AO in it, so it actually ends up translating to something like the land of the long white cloud. It's kind of a little bit of trivia for you. It's one of those trivia things that you learn very early on when you move to New Zealand. It's, I mean, if you're being at all attentive to, to the history of, of where you're moving to, you learn that pretty quickly. So Auraki was the cloud in the sky. Raki Roa was long Raki. Raki Rua is Raki the second, and Raraki Roa, a long continuous line. Those are the names of the of the sons of the Sky Father. They came down in their canoe, which was known as Te, te Waka A Araki, and they kind of cruised around for a while until they discovered a place called Hawaii. Hawaii. That's H A W A I K I. It is not clear at all in either the museum stuff that I saw or in what I've been researching online where or what Hawaki is. I'm not sure that it's supposed to be a physical place. I don't I don't believe it's for instance Australia, the, the biggest landmass near New Zealand. I don't think it's Antarctica. It doesn't I, I it seems like it's almost like not a place. It, there's the there's the suggestion that it is the basically the cradle of life. What it, wherever that would be in this region, that's what Hawaki is. There are some reports that Hawaki is this sort of yeah, uh, almost a dimmy plane, heavenly area where a supreme god called Io I O created life and I think the other gods and so on but that seems you you don't I I didn't hear about EO until I was researching online and then the source of that comes from some of the government sites talking about Mori tradition and it's acknowledged there that there's some debate over whether EO is a post-colonial concept that Mori's adopted which, of course, would 
be rather in line with with a lot of colonial mentalities, sort of arrive at a place, explain to the natives that your monotheistic god is responsible for all of their polytheistic gods, and then it becomes integrated into the mythos. So I'm not 100% sure if Eo is sort of canonical, or if it's only canonical for certain Iwi, or if it is a completely post-colonial concept that got integrated so so thoroughly that it wasn't really separated until later. Um, not sure. So, Hawaki, anyway, is a place that these four sons of the Sky Father discovered, and around Hawaki, their canoe capsized, and they fell into the water. I, I couldn't find out what happened to them, to be honest. I could not find out if they were okay, if they swam away, if, if they just went back up to the sky or what. But their canoe capsized, and the capsizing of this canoe, obviously since it belonged to the gods, it was huge, and it formed the South Island of New Zealand. So the South Island of New Zealand, if you go back to the creation myth, is a canoe of the gods flipped. And that's why in the Mori tradition, the South Island is called Te Waka Aoraki. So takeaways from this, this simple creation story, uh, just to, to try to bring it into the, the world-building process, for me at least, was an emphasis on Te Kore and Te Po. So Te Kore being this great nothingness, and Te Po being this time where you know there was something, but you couldn't see it because it's shrouded in night. Those come across to me as as times of of mystery, of of a of a time where well, where there is no time because there's either only potential or there's only night, and with no reference point, it could be it could be five minutes, it could be a thousand years. You just don't know, because the the night is unchanging. In this case, so you have you've got this sort of storytelling time where anything might be happening, um, and and certainly by the time the world comes into being, the gods already exist, and so so there's a lot of potential, very important cosmological things that could happen during either. Tekore or Tepo, and it's not really explained anywhere as far as I can tell. And whether you're using the Mori creation myth for the for the stand-in for a creation myth in, in your campaign setting, or whether you're just sort of thinking about how creation myths are formed, I feel like that unknowable time before history before the, the people existed, before whatever, anything could happen there, and the, the gods could be being born, they could be having wars, they could be fighting, they could be making uh, relationships with one another, forming, forming um, agreements and bonds, who knows what's happening. Or, or there could be a people, a, a race, before the current races existed, that are doing things. So you just don't know, and I think that kind of unknowable thing is, is it's really perfect 
for any campaign, whether it's a D&D campaign or a Call of Cthulhu campaign, who cares? Anything that's unknowable that you can spring on players or readers or whatever it is that you're creating. These these secrets that are being uncovered by by the process of the storytelling, it, it's it's perfect. And so that's that's kind of what Te Kore and Te Po, and maybe to a lesser extent Te Marama, although Te Te Rama uh, Marama seems to me like an ending, because that's when the world comes into being. So it's almost like, well, okay, now the mystery is over, light exists, and and now history begins. But I, I imagine if you needed some time on Earth before all the current races um, started messing around, you you could you could say, well, that's that's what Te Ao Marama is. It's the the time before the 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 people came to the land, and that's perfectly acceptable as well. It's just a little bit less exciting, I think, because now the mystery is gone. There's light. Everyone can see everything. But it would be important, I guess, because that's when the, the land would be forming and, and the current nations, uh, or, or the boundaries of their continents at least, would be would be decided upon. So that's the first thing that kind of came, sprang to my mind in terms of of what what potential a creation myth holds. The other thing that the the really the actual first thing that that struck me when I was learning about all of this was the relationship between the sky and the land, and nothing I think embodies that quite as well as a holiday here on in New Zealand called Matariki. It's not a national holiday. People don't get off of work for it, but it's a widely recognized holiday. And it is, in a way, the Mori New Year. It is marked by the Pleiades. Now, the Pleiades, of course, wasn't called the Pleiades by the Mori people. It was called Matariki. So the Matariki holiday is named for the Matariki constellation, the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. The significance of all this is that in autumn, the Matariki is not visible, and that is the signal, or it was the signal, for the the people of the land to go and gather and preserve their crops. The Matariki uh, disappear sometime, maybe April or May, and then it reappears in sort of early June or maybe late May. And this marked the harvest time. It was a big deal for obvious reasons. You have to remember, of course, that if you're listening to this from the from the northern hemisphere, that the seasons are flipped here in the southern hemisphere. So that's why a harvest time happens in May or June, July, that time frame. Whereas you're probably thinking of harvest festivals in October, that kind of region. So... April, May, June, autumn, and it's around Matariki that you sort of get really what passes for, uh, if you're an American, passes for, as I am, uh, it passes for a sort of a Thanksgiving feast, really. Now, it depends greatly on which island you're on and how close to Antarctica you are versus being close to the equator, whether or not the autumn feast 
demands, for instance, a sweater or not. But nevertheless, around that time, you're, you're certainly free to go have a really nice, rich meal. And there's a hungi tradition here in, Mo- in New Zealand, in Moriland, um, in New Zealand, where they, they wrap, um, this, it's a traditional meal, and you wrap a bunch of, a bunch of vegetables, and I think, I think traditionally, you know, a pig or something, or, or maybe a bird, I don't know, because pigs didn't really exist here on New Zealand until the colonists, but you wrap this, this food in, um, some leaves, and I don't know what kind of leaves you're supposed to use, obviously modern, modern, uh, cookers are just using aluminum foil more more likely than not but you you wrap them in leaves and you bury them in a um, in a fire pit essentially in, in this hot coal pit or hot hot stone pit and and it cooks it's a slow cooker for for all day long and then during the on on matariki on whatever day you're celebrating it if you're celebrating it on a specific day traditionally there may have been longer celebrations but Today, it's really more of a one-day thing. And so, on Matariki, you start your, the hangi, uh, in the morning sometime, and it's usually in mass. It's a bunch of food. So you've got this big fire pit, or this sort of hot stone pit underground to, to insulate, uh, with all these food parcels. And then in the evening, after a day of celebration, you, the, the people uncover, the food and it's now been cooked and it's absolutely delicious it's amazing it's usually just like i don't know cabbage and turnips and um potatoes the uh, kind of again harvest time sort of like what you would think of as as autumnal food that's kind of the the food that you're going to get out of this out of the hangi uh and it's a big celebration and you ideally find a group of people celebrating Matariki just as you would in America. You would find a group of people ideally celebrating Thanksgiving, come together and eat your big meal and uh, have music or whatever. So it's it's a lot of fun actually, but aside from me just getting probably too excited about um, the, cons- the, the prospect of a really big autumnal meal, um, the thing that interests me about Matariki is what better, what better representation of this concept of of the earth and the sky being significant to one another. The Matariki, all, you know, it was, it was a very notable constellation, right? It's a very famous constellation, the Pleiades. Everyone's heard of that, and navigators find it important. I, I've heard. I don't know. I don't navigate by the stars typically don't really navigate at all but there's significant right it's it's part of the sky that you would see and so it it quite likely helped the the mori explorers early mori explorers find new zealand in the first place so it's significant for that reason it is literally the sky bringing these people to the land across great great distances really, I want to say impossible distances, but obviously it's not impossible because they did it amazingly. Um, so there's that, and then there's also just the idea that here's the sky signaling the people to go to go gather their food for the oncoming winter. It's, it is exactly what people are talking about when they say well, that these, these cultures had 
uh, significance, you know, saw significance between the, the relationship between the sky and the land. I feel like Matariki sums that up quite nicely. What does that mean for your, your world building? Well, in world building, I think there's kind of strength in, in pragmatism. And you can come up with crazy ideas and crazy stories and, and interesting twists on lore out of the blue. But if there's a couple of things in there that ring true, then it adds credence to the existence of this world. And if you keep in mind that the sky and the land for a lot of ancient peoples who were really at the mercy of both, they didn't have a whole lot of control, and it's difficult for us to kind of really understand that sometimes in in the modern world because we, we think, well, in a pinch, we'll spend the extra money and build a little greenhouse for ourselves, and, and then we can garden in more or less a controlled environment. But you think about the fact that there just wasn't glass at, at, at for a very long time in human history. You didn't have a luxury of a greenhouse. You didn't have a luxury of, of protecting plants from the elements without also killing your plants because they need light. So it's a big deal, and it's a, it's a thing that's very difficult to understand. I'm certainly not a meteorologist or a geologist. I barely have a concept of how weather works. And that's with the modern flow of information, and I still barely understand it. Just obviously imagine an ancient group of... an ancient culture of people whose whole world is probably their you know, the immediate, I don't know, 50-mile radius with the mind-blowing prospect that beyond those 50 miles there are there there's more world, but certainly that world doesn't extend beyond just your island. And then you really blow the mind if you tell people, if you were to tell someone that, well, there's another island that we could get to pretty easily. It's like a day's journey uh, up from the north tip of our island to the south tip of that island. And that's a day from the tip of the island to the tip of the island. Getting to that point, I'm sure, would be several days as well and dangerous at that. But but certainly the the, the world couldn't possibly be bigger than just those two islands. And trying to comprehend that as your whole world and then not knowing what controls that world or what exactly you have to do to get a break so that you can get a sunny day after five days of rain that's the sort of thing where religions can be can be so such a reaction such an obvious reaction to to things that are obviously important and add little mixtures of that into some of your crazy world-building philosophies and religions, and it starts to ring true, because we all know that deep down. We know that ancient cultures would have would have required some kind of explanation and some kind of... some some sort of hypothesis as to what they can do to influence their the, the reality around them. And it makes a lot of sense 
to imagine that there's a force controlling the things around you and that if you make an appeal to that force then you can have some kind of influence on on everything surrounding you it's it's a good hypothesis it's worked for uh, thousands of years for people at least it's brought comfort to people if nothing else because there's some percentage of the time where your request to this great force actually works and there's some percent of the time that it doesn't work but that's something that you could probably explain by blaming either yourself or others for your actions and your lack of faith or whatever so there's there's a very raw and pure and almost sadly desperate but frankly how many of us don't fall prey to that there's a, there's truth to it and when you're building your world i think that helps a lot hopefully this has been somewhat interesting uh thanks for listening and i'll talk to you next time that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not Klaatu. I'm on the Freenode network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.